turning your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. And follow along silently as I read aloud. Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. This is what the Word of God says. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around them all, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Lord, we are grateful to be uh, in your presence. We're grateful to be uh, gathered together. We think of those who are not among us for a variety of reasons. And pray, Lord, that uh, they would be aware of your love for them. That they would be aware of your presence with them as well. But we pray that you would bless all of us as we hear from your word, as we read your word, and as we share in this time together that you would cause us to be changed for your glory, for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sixth gospel of Luke is kind of a transitional point in the sense that uh, of how it relates to Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. Because up until now, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees have actually been just their curiosity or kind of neutral. We've not seen direct negativity come from the Pharisees to Jesus up until this particular portion of the gospel of Luke. That all changes in our text today, right? Because by the time we reach the end of what I just read, the Pharisees actually want to kill Jesus. Look again at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That was where the account ends. That's how they respond to what Jesus has just done. Uh, In the Matthew account and the Mark account, you can read that they actually did want to kill Jesus, that they actually yoked arms with Herodians, people that they would never yoke arms with for anything else. But they were like, you know what? I know we hate each other, but can we have common ground and hate and kill him? All right, deal. And then they're yoking arms to try to get Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here. The sentiment, however, is actually seen in our text today prior to verse 11. If you look at verse 2, when the Pharisees say, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? That's actually an accusation uh, to Jesus and the disciples of something that is punishable by death. It was a capital offense. So keep your place in Luke chapter 6 and flip back to the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter 15. Uh, Numbers 15 and pick it up in verse 32. Numbers 15, verse 32 says this, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. So again, Sabbath breaking was a capital offense. What they're accusing Jesus of doing is a big deal. 
But the fact that Sabbath breaking was a capital offense wasn't wrong. It's strikingly biblical. We just read that in the book of Numbers. That's, what, that's God's word. Literally, God spoke that. It's not like the people did that on their own. The problem was that the Pharisees added ways, tons of ways, in which people might be guilty of breaking the Sabbath and therefore might be punished by death. So they're adding things that that people can find themselves in violation of the Sabbath law that aren't biblical but are traditional. They're not biblical, but they're historical, and they've become commonplace. And they're written in something called the Talmud. Like, the Talmud was not written back in Jesus' time. It was written a few centuries after. But it's a central text of mainstream Judaism that contains discussions and commentary on Jewish history, on customs, on culture, on the law, and especially its practical application to life. Not a biblical book, but a book that talks about Jewish culture. The Talmud devotes 24 chapters to Sabbath regulations. 24 chapters detailing what was and was not permitted to be done. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to try to give you a sampling of how they rolled. And remember, what I'm about to tell you, this is not God's law, this is Man's law. This is man's interpretation of how to apply the Mosaic law concerning the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. But if one had placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath, that point would then be considered a home. Since there was food there and allow another 3,000 feet of travel. Also, a piece of wood or a rope placed across the end of a a narrow street or an alley constituted a doorway. That could be considered the front door of one's house and permit the 3,000 feet of travel to begin there. That's super clear, right? You guys, I mean, this makes sense. Yeah. Uh, If you tossed an object into the air, it could be caught with the same hand. Uh, If you caught it with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If, If a person had reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped because to bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig, but something weighing half as much could be carried two times. I mean, that's just math. That checks out. A a tailor couldn't carry his needle. A scribe couldn't carry his pen. A student couldn't carry his books. You could only carry enough ink with you to write two letters. Not correspondence letters, two letters of the alphabet. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out before being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, and that would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm into cold. (laughs) Bathing was forbidden because if you spilled water on the floor, you guys, it would wash the floor, which might be your attempt to actually do washing on the Sabbath and serve as a temptation for you. So, no bathing. Moving a chair was not allowed since it might make a rut on the dirt floor, and that's all too similar to plowing. (laughs) Women were forbidden to look in a mirror because if they saw a white hair, they might be tempted to pull it out. Other forbidden things included sowing, plowing, Reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, grinding, kneading, baking, 
shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, or spinning wool, tying a knot, untying a knot, catching, killing, or skinning a deer, salting its meat, or preparing its skin. This is the word of the Pharisees. Just in case you think that was then. The neighborhood I actually grew up in was actually very, very, very close to a very strict Orthodox Jewish community. One of the hospitals in that community was a place that I would, it was one of the closest ones to our home and a place where I would go if I needed medical attention, but it's also a place that I would go to do pastoral visits of people who are in the hospital. And since it's in a Jewish community, they had what's called a Sabbath elevator. And a Sabbath elevator, it was eight, I think it was six or eight stories. I think it was eight stories. From Friday night to Saturday night, this elevator would go from the first floor to the top floor automatically and stop at every floor on the way down so that Jewish people did not have to push a button. Like, that's a thing. Silly Jen tell me, I'm like holding the door for people. It was so, I was the great, fast way to get to eight. I loved it. Like, it was phenomenal. This happens today. Understand, this is not, that's how it was back then. They've seen the light. Uh, zero. Rabbinical Judaism is full of Talmudic beliefs that they are hold to Scripture, or one might even say hold above Scripture, because that is what they live by. Now, turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 23, because I want to show you something that has to do with the text that we're in today. Deuteronomy Chapter 23, because you'll recall that in Luke chapter 6, it says that on a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So you say, what's that all about? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 3, pick it up in verse 24. Now keep in mind, uh, you could walk through It's not like there was all these well-paved roads, right? To walk through someone's field, to walk through someone's yard, is not the same as you walking through my yard, where I would be like, hey, just curious why you're you're walking through my yard. We've got a paved road out front, sidewalk. Why are you walking through my yard? It wasn't that way back then. You You would always be walking through someone's grain field. It was not that big of a deal. So God speaks to that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24. For example, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. So what does that mean? Well, you had long journeys. It's not like you could stop at Speedway, pick up an energy bar or something. So you had long journeys. You're walking through someone's vineyard. You're a little hungry. Yeah, help yourself. Eat some grapes. There's enough grapes. But like, don't shop there, right? Like, don't, don't put any in your bag, right? The person, we all know that person. You might be that person. You go to a restaurant. And you, there's enough sugar there for you to use while you're at the restaurant. But you don't open your bag and dump the sugar in your bag. Judging by the way you are looking one to another, you like so do that. But anyway, that's, that's the principle that's laid out here is, yeah, help yourself, have your fill, but, you know, this is not your place to go shopping for the week. Just eat your grapes and move on. Look at the next verse. Uh, verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's uh, standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, yeah, help yourself. You can eat. Don't harvest it. It's my grain, but help yourself. It's not going to make a living off of this. You eat and then move on. It's fine. We can do that. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 6 and to our text today, it says on a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. This was not a violation of God's law, evidenced by the fact that I just read to you from God's law, as to how they're supposed to act. It was a violation of the Pharisees' homemade law because they thought when the disciples picked the grain, they were reaping. When they rubbed the husks together to separate them from the grain, they were harvesting. When they threw the husks away that they weren't going to eat, they were winnowing. Now, Jesus calls them on it, as you can see, uh, in verse 3, where he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he calls them back to something that happened. You probably have in your Bibles, a cross-reference to 1 Samuel chapter 21, which we're not going to turn to there, but I'm going to summarize what Jesus is referring to because he's like, you guys are not theological lightweights. Have you not, you ever read 
the word that you've memorized? Have you forgotten that? And so Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. So here's what happened. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 21. David was running away from Saul, running from his life. He came to a place called Nob, which is just north of Jerusalem. David was hungry. The people with him were hungry. And so they entered the tabernacle looking for food. And they meet a priest, and the priest's name is Ahimelech. And he asked the priest for five loaves of bread. The only thing is the tabernacle is not like a bakery. But they were hungry, so they just asked the priest for five loaves of bread. And the only bread that was available there was the consecrated bread, otherwise known as the bread of presence, which you could read about in Exodus chapter 25. And it could, it could be eaten, but only at a certain time, and even then only by the priests. David wasn't a priest. The people with him weren't a priest. They were just hungry. Ahimelech was willing to give some of the consecrated bread to David and his men, which he did, and they ate it, and they were full. So the point Jesus is making to the Pharisees is like, have you not, do you not remember what David did? Like that was temple bread. So he's making an argument kind of from the greater to the lesser. David walked into a temple and got bread. That was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. And there's a principle that Jesus is trying to bring to their mind, and that is mercy and compassion and human need was more important than strict and rigid adherence to the law. That wasn't a trail that Jesus was blazing, but a precedent that we can read back in the Old Testament, even as early as 1 Samuel. Then he goes on to say something very bold in verse 5. Look at Luke 6 and verse 5. He said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, make no mistake, that's Jesus saying, I am God. I am God. He's basically saying, you know, the whole in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day? You know that? I'm that guy. I was there. John chapter 1 says nothing was created that was not created through Jesus. He's like, I'm, I'm that guy. You know how it says the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy? I'm also that guy. Like, I did that. I am God. And quite frankly, don't tell me how to obey the Sabbath that I created for my glory, please and thank you. So when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am God. I am the Lord. Well, then there's another Sabbath controversy that comes up in verse 6, right? On another Sabbath, that's what we read. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And so what that basically means is his hand was atrophied from paralysis. It had withered away. It was useless. He did not have use of his right hand. Verse 7, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him, watched him. Now, there's a Greek word there that's used for watched, and it's paratereo, which means watched like with accusation, watched insidiously, watching with a motive. Every time Luke uses that word throughout the Gospel of Luke, it's never just, oh, they happen to be, they happen to watch, like passively watching. You're driving in the car, you're watching the trees go by. It's not that. This is watching with a purpose, watching with a motive, scrupulously watching him in order to catch him because they, they so wanted to kill him. And you know the end of Jesus' life. Eventually they do. And so they're, they're watching carefully, watching his every move. They're, they're hoping to catch one area at least of where he might fall, where he might falter. So they go, aha, he broke the Sabbath, and therefore that's a capital offense. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, but he knew, we see it again, right? What did he know? He knew their what? Thoughts. He knew their thoughts. And so he doesn't talk to them, at least not now. He talks to someone else, uninvolved, man with a withered hand. And he says, come and stand here. It says, and he rose and stood there. Uh, okay. And he stands there. Then Jesus says, not to him, but to the Pharisees. Question. I ask you, verse 9, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Now, if you consider that question, you can envision 
want you to look at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. In that space, I want you to know what that space represents, in my opinion. It represents an unbelievably awkward, pregnant pause that I'm convinced exists there. And that's because there's no good way they can answer that question. Let me show you. So Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Here are their options. If they say it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, they would basically be telling Jesus, yeah, you're clear to heal this guy. Like, Do your thing. But if they did that, then they can't condemn him for breaking the Sabbath, right? On the other hand, if they say it was not lawful to do good on the Sabbath, they'd show that they have wicked hearts. It would be obvious that they're just the self-righteous hypocrites that they are. And so when you look at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, that's their answer. Silence. Nothing. But not peaceful silence, but awkward, tense, conflict-ridden, confrontational silence. Verse 10. And after looking around at them, he said to him, the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, look at verse 10. In verse 10, it seems that there's two events there, right? Jesus awkwardly looking at them, and then Jesus instructing the man to stretch out his hand. Now, what I'm about to tell you, you might think is an insignificant detail, but I think it helps to paint the picture of what it felt like there. So just bear with me. There's actually nothing in the Greek to show two separate events there. There's actually a Greek participle there that suggests simultaneous action with the main action. So the main action there is Jesus saying, stretch out your hand. You say, okay, Greek geek, like, who cares? Here's here's just, I just want to paint this picture. I think Jesus was looking at them while he said, stretch out your hand. So it was simultaneous. So it it probably went something like this. I'll be Jesus. Man with the withered hand. Come here. Stand here. Question. On the Sabbath... Is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? To do good or to do harm? Stretch out your hand. And Jesus with his gaze on the hypocrites... Looking at them, tells him to stretch out his hand, and it's immediately restored. Can you feel that, that tension that he doesn't take his eyes off them but tells him what to do? And his hand is it's restored, he's healed. And so even though Jesus wasn't bound by their ridiculous, unbiblical restrictions, watch this. He actually still abided by them because Jesus healed him without lifting a finger. Done. No remedy, no touch, no outward application at all. Just his Words. And so he broke the Sabbath as God breaks it to sustain or restore life, to do good. No touching necessary, no work necessary. He just speaks, right? Just like he spoke the world into existence, his word saves, his word 
heals. And we have this messianic mic drop of sorts. Where Jesus is like, and done. The title of the sermon is Losing My Religion. Uh, If you're a fan of REM, you'll understand what I'm about to say. In my prep, I reached a point where I said, oh no, I've said too much. And so I'm not preaching the whole first point that's on your outline. Read it, study it, pass it out at parties. Great. We're not going to touch it today. The second point says this. You need to be sure your personal practices don't turn into a false religion. You need to be sure your personal practices don't turn into a false religion. I think sometimes what we think is that Jesus is like rubbing up against and clashing with Old Testament Judaism. Not true. The Pharisees had created a false religion. Sometimes legalists, they act as if they just take religion and the things of God more seriously than others. They give this appearance of, or, or they, they, they put off this notion as if, well, we, we really care. That's why we're, we're so into the details. It's not, it's because we really care. You probably should be a little more like us. But I want you to understand, what Jesus is coming up against here is a false religion, a heretical Religion, a salvation by works religion by which no one ever has been or ever will be saved. That's the clash you're seeing here in the text. It's not old and new. It's a clash between man-made heretical religion and orthodoxy. Between damnable false religion and redeemable true religion. Between sinful, self-righteous, heretical man and holy, righteous, merciful, gracious God. And you know how it happened? It happened because they canonized their convictions. They canonized their convictions. Canonizing. Um, Back, the early church was looking through the words of God and trying to decide which ones of these letters, which of these books meet the standard of God's word and which meet the standard of just a book. That doesn't mean that the other ones are bad, but they're just not God's word. And so there's a whole bunch of standards that councils and people would look at to decide which books really were of the Lord. And those are the books that landed in your Bible today. You'll notice the Talmud is like, so not there. It's not a bad book, but it's just not a biblical book. But when those books were added to the canon of Scripture... They were canonized. That term means canonized. And the canon is closed. So it's not to be continued. We're not, con- we're not open theists. Right? We're not constantly adding to the word of God like some people do. The canon is closed. But that's called canonizing a book. Canonizing your convictions is a term I'm using to say when you take a conviction that you have, that you hold very dearly, might be somewhat biblical in intent, but it's not biblical in detail. By not biblical, I don't mean ungodly. I just mean it's, it's not found in here. Just like microwaves are not biblical, right? Saying they're wrong? No, I'm just saying they're not. Bit central air, not biblical. Lots of th- My Prius, not biblical. It's just not in here. So there's lots of things that are just not biblical. So it's an extra biblical. Be careful. Extra biblical doesn't mean I'm extra biblical. No, extra biblical means extra biblical outside of the Bible. And so it's a, perhaps there's a conviction you have, but it's not biblical in detail, but it's biblical in intent. It helps you honor God. It helps you walk in obedience. That's fine. That's your conviction. That's all well and good. But if you canonize your conviction, you'll place your personal conviction and personal decisions on the same level as the word of God. And that's all sorts of bad. Let me give you some examples. The Bible roundly condemns drunkenness. The Bible says don't get drunk and that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't get drunk. Don't be a drunk. Okay. Seems, that sounds reasonable. Now, you might say, I so want to not get drunk that I'm actually going to abstain from alcohol on the whole. 
I'm going to abstain from alcohol on the whole. Because I want to place even more distance between me and the possibility of ever sinning, being associated with that sin at all. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a teetotaler. I'm going to abstain from drinking alcohol on the whole. That's fine. Great. That's fine. You might say, but I'm not done. Furthermore, I can't understand how any Christian, how any Christian in their right mind can do anything different than what I'm doing. And if you say that, I think you're on shaky ground. You might also say, I gotta be honest with you, I don't think anyone who drinks any alcohol for any reason at all is really a Christian. Here's your sign you're a Pharisee. You've, you've canonized your conviction. It's not in here, it's in here, and you're reading it into here. And so now you've decided this is a litmus test for love for God, a litmus test for salvation is whether or not someone ever enjoys an alcoholic beverage. So for you to choose to not to, that's great. That's fine. Whatsoever is not of faith is of sin, right? Romans 14, 23. For you to choose to not do that, that's all well and good. Now for you to look around and judge everyone else as to what they're doing and say, I don't think they're really a Christian because of what they're drinking, you're a Pharisee. You've canonized your conviction. God desires us to be humble, Modest people living a a peaceable life. Specifically, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and following, we know God wants women to dress in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with costly attire, but what is proper. In other words, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't draw attention to yourself. Seems reasonable. Okay. Now, I uh, know a lady in my old church who decided that she so wanted to not draw attention to herself that she doesn't care how warm it was outside. She's not going to ever wear... There's certain clothes she's not going to ever wear. One of them was a a tank top. So she said, that's how much I just want to put that much distance between me and the possibility of ever drawing attention to myself. I'm not going to wear tank tops. I'm going to keep it at short sleeves. Okay. That's fine. And she goes on to say, if she were to go on to say, quite frankly, I can't understand how any Christian in their right mind can wear a tank top. I think she's then on shaky ground. If she says, I think the wearing of tank tops across the board is incompatible with Christianity. So if a woman wears one, she's probably not really a believer. Here's your sign. You have just become a Pharisee. You've canonized your conviction. Uh, Six years ago, I was convicted, convicted by God about how I handled myself on vacation with my family. Because while on vacation with my family, I would still check email um, and communicate with my church family and staff uh, because God needs me to do that. I don't know. I felt like I needed to stay in touch. And in so doing, I actually felt I was... I wasn't giving my family focused time and attention, and I was still making myself available to my church family, but sometimes at the expense of my actual family. And so I decided in 2015, I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I'm a pretty extreme guy. So not only am I not going to do it anymore, but here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I do to this day. I'm going to set up an auto-reply that says two things, out of the office on vacation, and also, I haven't received your message, And if you want me to receive your message, you're going to have to send it back to me after this certain date. And then I set up, I'm not done. Then I set up a filter that takes my emails between those dates and just puts them in a folder so they never hit my inbox. Mark them as read, and they're there if I need them. But part of the temptation to me to check email was I didn't want to come back from vacation and have to climb out underneath a pile of email. So I just said, I'm not going to climb out underneath a pile of email. If you want to get me, the onus is on you. You can reach out to me after I get back from vacation. And it works actually really well. It works well in three ways. It works well because people say, hey, I, they'll send me an email. Hey, I sent this while you're on vacation. They'll resend it. Great. It works well in another way because people say, hey, I emailed you. Go look for it. And I can type and I can look for it because it's in a folder. And it works in another way because lots of times I think people don't send me the stuff that they really sent me. And I, I hate that, like, not at all. So that's how I roll on vacation. 
That's how the Lord convicted me, and it's blessed my family, and it's been helpful. That's how I roll. Now, if I say, quite frankly, I can't understand how any Bible-believing Christian in their right mind can say they love their family and not give their own family some dedicated, undistracted time for a week or two. I would say I'm on, I'm on pretty shaky ground. Sounds pretty petty. Sounds kind of judgy. Sounds pretty self-righteous. It works for me. I had a Jesus complex and thought, I have to be available. What if I miss something? And God's like, I think I got it. I'm God. You can go in the ocean and not check email when you get out. You're, there's not a vacancy in the Trinity, bro. You're good. I'm good. Be on vacation. So that works for me. That's literally something the Lord convicted me of after being in ministry for 14 years in 2015. But when I start saying, oh, here's something else. I can't understand how any Christian in their right mind won't do as I do. Because I love my family. Apparently other people don't love their family as much. Because this is how I've been rolling for six years. God's like, I've been good forever. You made a change six years ago. You're super happy. But if I then go on to say, I think anyone who does differently than me doesn't really love their family as much as their job and might actually not be a believer because they're not trusting in God for something small like him taking care of work while they're away, how in the world can they trust God for something big like their salvation of their very soul? That would make me a Pharisee. I would have canonized my conviction. What about you? What personal practices, big or small, have you employed in your life to help you walk with Christ in holiness? It's good. But which of those might you be tempted to judge others by? See, in each of those instances that I list, someone starts out well-intentioned. Well-intentioned. They want to think rightly and do rightly in different situations. And so they come to a conclusion that they believe is what God would have them do. That's fine. That's godly living. That's caring about obedience. That's caring about holiness. It's not a bad thing. That's all well and good. The Pharisees were similar. God says we should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Part of that is resting from our work on the Sabbath. That's fine. Hey, I have an idea. Let's set up different things in our lives to make sure we would like so not work. It's like me setting up an email filter and an auto-reply. I want to take away the temptation of why I would want to be distracted from my family. The Pharisees are doing the same thing. You know what? In order to ensure we don't work on the Sabbath, let's commit to X, Y, and Z. Let's not check Sabbatarian email on the Sabbath. But when you raise your practice to the level of the Word of God, you've canonized your conviction and it will distract you from the true and right and good religion and lead you into an area of your life that will be riddled with false religion. And the more false religion you have in your life, the more of a dangerous spot you'll be in. And so I want to give you, it's in your outline, four results of canonizing your convictions. There's there's probably more, but from this text, from Luke chapter 6, I can see four results of what happens when you canonize your convictions. The first one, you'll see the word of God become secondary to your personal preferences. The word of God will become secondary to your personal preferences. Luke 6 and verse 2 Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Top of mind for them was their homemade rules and regulations, not the word of God. That's why Jesus confronts them with the word of God. That's why Jesus says, have you not read? Have you not, do you ever first Samuel, bro? Like, like, have you not read? Like this, this is not unheard of. You should know the word of God. But a chief reason the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath is because they were more concerned with, more familiar with their own rules than the word of God. And I think that's what happens when we canonize our convictions. We become more familiar with our canon than we do God's canon. And that's easy to do because to varying degrees we're naturally self-centered. We tend to think about ourselves first. No one has to teach us to do that. Right? Nobody ever went up to a kid and like, listen, daddy wants to teach you how to be selfish. I want to teach you how to look out for number one. Watch me. No. 
No one ever has ever done that. But if there's a group picture posted online and you're in it, you look for yourself first. Yes, you do. That's just natural. We do that. Why? Because the first person on our mind is us and we have to repent of that. But we're naturally bent towards self. So pharisaicalism and legalism fits right into how we tend to roll. And the Pharisees were infinitely more concerned with their own rules than the word of God. Put them on par with the word of God. One might say put them above the word of God. If you canonize your convictions, you'll see the word of God become secondary to your personal practices. Secondly, you'll find yourself judging yourself and others according to your own standards. Here's what I mean by that. Luke 6 and verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. That's top of mind, is judging him according to their rules. The more extra-biblical personal preferences and rules you adhere to, the more likely you're going to judge others according to them because they're always going to be on your mind. It might even be subconscious. You might not be trying to. But if you're canonizing convictions, you'll find yourself thinking about it more often than you plan. You'll go to a ball game, and while you're there trying to enjoy a ball game, you can't help but be distracted about what your friends are ordering to drink. You spend $12 on a Pepsi, but they spend $14 on a beer. And in your mind, you're wondering how they could do that. Because it's top of mind. When she wears something you wouldn't wear, you can't get beyond it. It's all-encompassing. How could she do that? Why would he do that? Why doesn't she care? How come he doesn't care about God and people and the Bible and anything right or good? The more you canonize your convictions, the more it becomes a lens through which you look through and judge people and even yourself. Thirdly, you'll find it difficult to celebrate the mercy and grace of God at work in others. So I do this whole email thing, right? Super dad. I'm laughing because if I can't laugh at myself, I'll, I'll cry. So I would then send an email. Not, I mean, like, I got a, maybe a coworker or whatever on vacation. I'm like, oh, we got to talk about this when they get back. I'll send an email to them. And I'll say, oh, I hope you're having a great time on vacation. Praying for you. I'll see you when you get back. The coworker replies and says, thanks. Talk about it when we get back. Having a great time. Super blessed. The weather's great. Okay. Instead of me going, praise God, having a great time. You know what I think? You'd have a better time if you didn't reply to your stupid email. (laughs) You'd enjoy the weather more if you weren't looking at your phone. How judgy, right? I can't even celebrate. Do you see what I'm saying? Instead of celebrating the fact that they're having a great time, you guys are like, you're a jerk. Like some of you, some of you are laughing and some of you are like, heck with him. But I'm just telling you, like, instead of me, wow, great, they're having a great vacation. That's awesome. I don't celebrate that. I'm like, "Mm." if you really cared about God, if you really cared about your family, you wouldn't write back. Look at verse 10. His hand was restored. Look at verse 11. I mean, they weren't celebrating. A man was healed in their presence, in front of their eyes. What we're reading about, they watched. Their response, I can't believe he did that on a Saturday. But that's what happens when you canonize your convictions. It starts becoming a grid and a lens that you start seeing other people and the world through that you maybe never intended. But it takes over your life and your heart and your mind. Finally, I think if you canonize your convictions, you won't know what it's like to truly Rest once and for all in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You won't. Earlier in our time together, we read from 
the book of Numbers, right, of a man who was executed because he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And therefore God executed him and did so rightly because he broke the law. Now, I have good news for you. That's not going to happen to you if you break the Sabbath because Christians aren't under the Sabbath law. In fact, there's no New Testament ink dedicated to instructions for Christians on how to keep the Sabbath because God had nothing to say to us about how to keep a law that doesn't apply to us. We don't have time to get into it. I wish we did, but the Sabbath is still Saturday. It always will be Saturday, and we're just not required to observe the Sabbath as the Old Testament believers were instructed because of what Christ did for us, which is outlined in Hebrews chapter 4, and it's in your outline. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 9, says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Listen. Jesus Christ was sent to earth for sinners like you and me. He lived a perfect life, perfect, kept every jot and tittle of the law perfectly without exception. Eventually, at the end of his life, the Pharisees do actually kill Jesus. He dies on the cross, and on that cross absorbs every bit of wrath and judgment that you and I have coming to us, and he absorbs God's wrath, blow after bloody blow, in his body, so much so that all who believe in Jesus would be pardoned from sin, and pardoned from what they owe God, because Jesus really paid it all. And then he died. Not slept, died, so much so that they buried him. And he stayed buried for two days. And on the third day, he arose, victorious over the grave, having defeated death. Now he's in heaven, and he's at the right hand of God. Is he pacing? No. Is he standing? No. Do you know what he's doing at the right hand of God? Sitting. He's resting because his work is finished. And we can rest in his finished work once and for all. And he is our Sabbath rest. Now our Sabbath is not one day a week. It's our life. We've entered into Sabbath rest because of what Jesus has done. He's fulfilled the law so we can always rest. It's not about the Pharisees' laws and rules and regulations. It's not about homemade law. It's about what Jesus has done once and for all. But here's the thing. Everyone who fails to enter into the Sabbath rest of Christ will be treated the same as the man from Numbers chapter 15 who gathers sticks on the Sabbath. He's supposed to be resting in God, but he wasn't. So he was judged guilty and was condemned. Friends, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And anyone who fails to enter into Jesus' Sabbath rest and chooses to gather sticks, whether those sticks are you trying to have your good outweigh your bad, or those sticks are you just, I just don't believe it, it's probably just all up to me, and I'm just going to become more food when I die. If you are gathering sticks instead of resting in the finished work of Christ, you're not going to get stoned by others, but you will die without hope, without help, and you will go to hell with no means of escape, For eternity. But if you believe that God is satisfied with you. Not because of your good works. But satisfied with you. Because he's made you holy. Because he's brought you into the beloved. Because he is satisfied in the payment that his son paid on the cross. You will be saved because he's your Sabbath rest. Kind of feel bad for the guy with the withered hand. He didn't make a lot of ink in the story. This is conjecture. That means I can't prove this from the text. But I'm pretty sure a good chunk of 
what that guy was doing was something like this. If you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you're like that guy. Right? You look and you're like, you look at your life and you know you better than I know you. And you're like, I have no earthly reason to be part of the family of God. But I am. been healed. And if you're not part of the family of God, I want to invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That your dead heart would be given life. That the the rock-hard stubbornness that you have at resisting the word of God, of pushing against God when you know he's coming after you. I just don't want to. That he would, with his word, look to you and just say, stretch out your hand. And you would. And you would be saved. And amazed by the sovereign, saving grace of God for all your days, and then even beyond your days with hope after the grave. Lord, would you bless us as we consider these things? Would you remind us of who we are in you? Would you work on the person's heart right now, the the person with a withered heart, And would you cause your word, O God in heaven, to run forth in a mighty, mighty way that that person might be made whole by being made right with you, by (laughs) that you would do a miracle in their life of raising their dead soul to life. And we want you to do it for your glory. You keep your promises for your glory. Your word goes out and doesn't return void for your glory. Do it for you. Save souls today. And remind us who are saved of the amazing grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.